And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 99 today. Can't believe we're already up to 99, but we're here. Uh, DMT and Alchemically Stoned with author P.D. Newman. Uh, check out P.D.'s book, Alchemically Stoned. I have the link down below the video. Uh, check us out at Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for $2 a month. Uh, we have exclusive interviews and videos uh, up on there. You can also check us out at MikeAndMauriceMindEscape.com. But, uh, yeah, let's get into it. What's going on, PD? How are you? Thanks for coming on. I'm doing fabulous. Thanks for having me. Uh, this has been a long time coming. I'm excited to Yeah, for it. sure. I know we tried to set this up before and timelines weren't working out, but uh, we're here and uh, we're making it happen. So all time. is good. Uh, yeah, and uh, our buddy, our mutual friend, RN, was... Uh, the one that helped set this up too so shout out to rn uh right spirit in the sky check out his his stuff as well um so why don't you talk a little bit about your background uh possibly how you got into psychedelics and then how you got into freemasonry and then started finding connections between the two well i got into psychedelics um first uh and it was a, a natural endeavor um I, I grew up in the deep south where um psilocybe cubensis mushrooms grow wild and uh and cow manure um so long as those cows are fed the proper diet and uh and most of the areas where we grew up um they are fed that diet so we had early access to psilocybin mushrooms and um and when i say early i mean as early as uh, 11 12 years old my brother and i were first learning how to pick and experimenting. And um, so, yeah, we got into psychedelics, you know, you know, kind of honest as a part of sort of deep South psychedelic underground culture. But, mm. um, you know, as, as my trips regressed, um, they became more and more uh, archetypal um, in a way, mythological. Uh, I started having experiences that I really didn't have any frame of reference for, and um, I decided that I should probably pursue some avenue of uh, initiation where I, th you know, at the time I, my thinking was, you know, there must be people who are, are if not taking these substances, at least dealing with these uh, internal labyrinths, this internal territory that I was dealing with. And uh, so I thought, you know, here in the South, masonry is a really big deal. It's... Uh, I have family members that were Masons, so but they were always very secretive about it. I didn't know much about it, but intuitively I felt drawn to it. Um, so I decided, you know, that was the avenue I would pursue. You know, I had no, no at the time, no inkling that uh, there might be psych psychedelic import to those uh, symbols and degrees. Um, so all of that was a surprise. And, it, and you know, and, and I kind of... Uh, it took me a long time to take it seriously, you know, for fear that I was guilty of uh, confirmation bias, that kind of thing. So, but yeah, it all happened pretty, pretty um, organically, honestly. Now, your book is a mixture of Masonic symbolism, occult symbolism, ancient uh, civilization connections and stuff like that. 
Uh, I've been researching for our stuff. We're working on a short video about Soma and Haoma and how those were two, uh, the origin of, of the, the language that those terms came from and how the Indo-Iranian migration started and the background mm-hmm. between all that stuff and then the split off and then you've got the Rig Veda and then you've got the Avesta, which both contain these ancient rituals and, and sacraments and stuff. Right, so right. Um, that's kind of the stuff that you talk about in your book <clears throat> as well as like Gordon R. Wasson, or, uh, R. Gordon Wasson and uh, Hoffman and their Lucinian mystery book having to do with these topics. What, what about that interests you? Is it just, does it kind of go hand in hand mixed with your, your uh, love for psychedelics and your love for Freemasonry? Or is that just, is it all tied in, do you think? Well, I think when I was about <clears throat> 14 or 15, um, I had gotten a job at uh, Walden Books. And that was the first time I encountered uh, the writings of Terrence McKenna. Before that, I'd never really read any psychedelic literature had no no interest in it this was something we did as a practical thing you know in in mississippi um i had no interest in it as an academic thing and uh it wasn't until i encountered mckenna's book archaic revival that i realized that um a lot of what he was talking about i had experienced myself but didn't have the vocabulary in which to interpret it, by which to interpret it. You know, I was very limited. Anybody's limited by their vocabulary and what, they, what they've been exposed to. Um, I had never been exposed to a lot of those ideas. <clears throat> so it opened up a lot of avenues of exploration into uh, ancient mysteries that were also using these substances, because the, mainly because they had a context for it. You know, I had no context the main reason I went into masonry, I had no context for this stuff. So uh, a big part of me at that time was interested in, well, if, if cultures, ancient and indigenous cultures were and are using these substances, what are the contexts in which they're using them? Because for me, I felt like I was just out in the deep end, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, so yeah, when I encountered those uh, models of interpretation as to what was going on at say the Eleusinian mysteries, you know, for the first time, uh, my experiences felt validated. And by the time I got into masonry, um, it had provided me with a, a model <clears throat> with which to apply to that structure, to those symbols. Um, the, the, the model provided by Ruck, Hoffman, and Wasson in the Eleusinian book, and uh, secondarily, the model, similar model, which was applied by um, Clark Heinrich, uh, to alchemy and religion in regards to <clears throat> the fly garrick mushroom, Amanita muscari mushrooms. Um, so, you know, at first it was a practical thing, but secondarily it, uh, it was a model of interpretation that uh, I extended to Freemasonry. No, yeah, that's interesting. So when you look at this stuff, let's say Masonic symbolism, uh, I believe you talk about how the it was it's there's the acacia branch that's that's associated with uh masonry but you said at one point it was something else it was cassia or cinnamon or something cinnamonum cassia okay the the plant and it's uh it's native to um southern china and it's basically cinnamon Mm. um what we buy 
currently what we buy in the grocery stores here in America as cinnamon is usually cassia. True cinnamon is kind of um, flaky, um, whereas you'll notice the cinnamon sticks we get here are sort of one curled piece of bark. That's that's real cassia. Gotcha. Um, So, you know, number one, it's already problematic because cassia isn't... uh, uh, isn't native to the region where Masonic ritual is based. So it's already weird that it would be used, but yeah, Cassia is what shows up in the earliest um, versions of the master Mason ritual. And it wasn't until after a man named uh, John Theophilus de Sagulier served as the third grand master of the premier grand lodge in London um, in and around 17, 1720s to 1730s I'm, I'm not certain about the dates but it's in that pocket um which is the same time that uh the master mason degree uh, was subject to significant changes and it's after that point <clears throat> and it, you see this and uh it's reflected in the exposés of the era all of the exposés <clears throat> and published rituals after 1730 after de stint as grand master um Cassia became acacia in every lodge in Europe, essentially. <clears throat> and uh, and yeah, no one no one really knew why. No one still knows why. I think I know why, but you know, it's a uh, it, the the answer isn't uh, isn't one and a lot of people want to hear. But um, so but yeah, so th- go ahead. Th- do you think it's a um somebody found some sort of connection to maybe a little bit more um, of the ancient mystery schools and then started to apply that as opposed to whatever this. So we don't know how, how exactly or why it got into masonry, but we know that it happened around De Sagulier and he was likely responsible for it. And Dr. David Harrison, who wrote the Genesis of Freemasonry, he believes the same, that, the cha- those changes were done by De Sagulier while he was in there. So let's mm. say, why did he do that? Um, <clears throat> well, De Sagulier was research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton in the Royal Society. Now, both uh-huh. of these men were practicing alchemists. We know for a fact that Newton was because just recently uh, a recipe for the Philosopher's Stone taken from uh, George Starkey uh, was found written in Newton's hand in a cache of papers. Um, so De Sagulier was his research assistant in the Royal Society. Mm. Well, the president of the, well, he was an elected president. I think he turned the position down of the Royal Society. One of the founders, <clears throat> the first chemist, is named Robert Boyle. I'm sure you've heard of Boyle's Law mm-hmm. and Chemistry. Um, <clears throat> well, in 2010, the Royal Society put on display this list that was called Boyle's wish list, which was an artifact, a a paper he had written up of things he wanted to acquire for the society to study. And it's the, it's full of stuff about drugs. He wants stuff. He says he wants uh, drugs that cause epileptic fits. He's looking for the, a specific fungus mentioned by a French author. He specifically says hallucinogenic drugs and no uncertain terms. So, the background from which De Sagulier came when he went into Freemasonry was one of of uh, investigation into entheogenic plants, into hallucinogens. So, 
that's one that's that's one bit of evidence that we have uh the other so this it goes back even further because the whole reason Boyle was interested in hallucinogenic drugs was because another man Elias Ashmole who was one of the first uh speculative freemasons he was an alchemist um and an antiquarian um he was a member of the royal society and he was the biographer of an elizabethan alchemist named John D mm-hmm. well John D was a, a magician who, with the help of a man named Edward Kelly, um, had a series of uh, of uh, operations where they communicated with angels, yeah, angelic Enochian. Enochian. That's yeah. where they acquired the Enochian alphabet. Well, before all this happened, Edward Kelly had been had come into to possession of this red powder that he believed would allow him to communicate with angels and it's just you know the it's it the way a lot of the biographies read is that um d kind of acquired kelly's help but the way it actually worked out was kelly was in possession of this manuscript that he had along with the powder called the book of dunstan but he couldn't read it and he knew that d was the most learned alchemist of his era uh so he sought d out to in hopes that d could Um, Number one, read this manuscript because Kelly thought that the manuscript contained the mysteries to how to produce more of this powder. Mm -hmm. So whether or not Kelly and Dee were actually using this powder to communicate with these angels is irrelevant because Boyle believed they were and Mm -hmm. Ashmole believed they were. So when Ashmole came to Boyle and said, yeah, there's this red powder that's an incorporeal thing and the quote is something he says, it's an incorporeal thing. That allows communic- It's a corporal thing that allows communication with incorporal spirits or entities, meaning angels. And so he tells Boyle about this powder, and Boyle says, well, it must be a drug. And it's at that point that Boyle puts together his wish list, and he says, we got to start investigating drugs because Boyle – he doesn't want to say it, but he's interested in talking to angels just like mm-hmm. D was. And I, I think it's from that background with that Desaguliers, who was a clergyman – also um, crept that acacia into Freemasonry. Now, we don't have any evidence that Desaguliers was actually using it in an entheogenic context, but when we fast forward, say, 40 years, um, excuse me, not for 20 years, uh, 15, 20 years up to um, when a man named Melisino founded his Masonic Rite in Russia, and a few years after that, Cagliostro's Rite in London, we have actual examples of the acacia being used in, in an entheogenic context, being discussed as being the alchemical primal matter, the secret of masonry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is that the so, first instance oh. or connection between psychedelics and masonry that you can find, or is there an earlier? It is, outside of Desaguliers' affiliation with the Royal Society and their investigation of psychedelic drugs. Hmm. The first actual instance I can find of it in Masonic ritual. Um, comes with uh, a man named Pyotr Ivanovich Melisino, who was he's considered the greatest Russian artillery man of his era. Um, he was a friend and colleague of Melisino, <clears throat> and he constructed a seven-degree Masonic rite that the culmination of which he saw as a holy thing, so much so that it couldn't take place in a lodge. It had to take place in a church. Um, a specific parish that he had prepared. Um, 
but in the culmination of it, the final degree, the candidate is told, you know, that the acacia is the <laughs> the primal matter of alchemy. And from this primal matter, the alchemists produce their treasures and that this treasure is the philosopher's stone. Mm-hmm. And, and if for those of our listeners, who, we're not who don't, talking Harry Potter here. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> for, and if you guys don't know much about alchemy, the, the basic premise of alchemy, uh, particularly European alchemy, was the production of this notion of a philosopher's stone that came from uh, what they called the primal matter. Now, in alchemy, no one talked about or revealed what that primal matter was. It was always very secretive. Um, so the, what it was and the process by which that stone w- was produced is the heart of alchemy. And it's with that stone that you can then affect what they call transmutation of base metals into gold. You know, all of these are deeper metaphors for um, for spiritual ideas, pretty much, by the time you get to um, European alchemy. And, and or the early days of alchemy in Egypt, for example, um, it was literal metallic transmutation, not of one metal into another, but of one metal's color into another. Um, the earliest alchemical texts were about how to dye metals, um, specifically because it was the dyeing of the metals that they believed they incorporated the spirit uh, of those deities into the statues. Um, and you see this with like Zosimos of Panopolis. Um, you, you can get a great book that just came out by... Um, uh, Shannon Cooper Grimes, uh, put out by Rubedo Press on Zosimos's texts and methods and uh, the, the era he was living and working in. Um, but by the time it became a European pursuit, um, it was clear that a lot of them were mainly working with, um, they were still wor- working with metals, but plants became a primary focus, mainly because of the drugs in them. Drugs mm-hmm. became a big deal, but with like... Um, the German um, physician and alchemist Paracelsus, you know, he he discovered uh, opium, and opium was his big um, go-to um, in his alchemy. He he talked about it giving uh, it being a solar thing and giving power to the mind and and all this stuff. And you get into Raymond Lully, who discovered uh, alcohol, alcohol distillation, and he called it aqua vitae, and you know, really believed it would strengthen soldiers and give you bravery and. And uh, so you've got spiritual alchemy, which you're talking about, like transmuting yourself or your soul or whatever. And then I mean, you've got people, pra- people practical do. alchemy, which right. is more of the actual let's extract this. Let's let's make some elixirs, some solutions, that kind and of thing. And one's inseparable from the other. Right. You know, they make it clear that uh, the alchemist is perfected with the stone. So when we're talking about the spiritual alchemy, it's predicated upon that laboratory alchemy. And a lot of people say, well, why would that be so? Well, if you're making a drug, it makes perfect sense. Because if you're not in the lab making the substance, it's going to produce this result in your internal lab. You know, Paracelsus even talked about the the stomach being the greatest alchemical lab known. Like mm-hmm. once right. you get the stone into the internal lab, that's when the secondary illumination takes place or perfection. I should say the stone is perfected. Then the alchemist is perfected with the stone. Mm-hmm. So do you think that when they're talking about transmuting something into gold, the gold could actually symbolize how when you extract DMT, depending on what you use, sometimes it's it's like a uh, yellow crystal. Maybe if you're better at it, it's more of a white crystal. But what do you think? Do you think there's a connection there or do you literally think that it had to do with the the gold? 
the stone the stone they say is a red stone you see okay. that in kelly you see that in ashmole um you see it in boil <clears throat> the it's constantly referred to as the red stone um now granted red and gold already have a correlation in alchemy but what they're talking about with the stone is not gold the stone makes gold the mm. stone transmutes base metals into gold gotcha. and when we talk about gold you know gold is further projected into the realm of metaphor and alchemy to represent anything solar you know brilliant consciousness illumination um, enlightenment those kind of ideas uh, and then, so you know in alchemy every every planet had a corresponding metal right mm -hmm. you have venus which cor corresponded to copper Mars corresponded to iron, you know, for weaponry. <laughs> so, and we also know that every man has a zodiac sign, right? And in Hermeticism, astrology played a, a heavy role. We know that all men have zodiac signs. Those zodiac signs are ruled by planets. Mm. You know, so when we talk about the transmutation of a base metal into gold, you know, one application of that idea is the transmutation of those those zodiac signs your basic wherever you are into something greater into that illuminated consciousness from base metals into gold you know from from those lessers into something higher and and you know all of those symbols they they're only meaningful within their context you take them out of their context and all of this stuff kind of just becomes a hodgepodge of of nonsense but uh, but within their context they're they're expressing a very real thing you know a very specific thing yeah so What's the red then? Is that just is it what you're talking about? The symbolism of of a planet that's being transmuted, or what do you think the base? The red stone is from the the red of the acacia. Okay. The inner root bark of the acacia, which is a brick red purple color. Okay. And in a crude extraction, which is what um, what an alchemist of this era would have been able to produce, would have been orangish pink reddish goo it wouldn't have been a stone proper but even in alchemy today um, laboratory alchemy you see alchemists they produce what they call a stone and oftentimes it's a paste um, uh, they call them plant stones and and what's called spagyrics spagyrical alchemy um, so stone is a loose term um, it's a loaded term is mm -hmm. one reason it's used but <clears throat> but you get even better at this and it becomes a powder um, which that powder is basically crystals but it's powdered and you know now modern you still have this with modern production of dmt you have to rewash it um to get a good crystal otherwise it comes out in multiple crystals uh little shards you have to kind of scrape back up with a razor blade i don't know if you're familiar with the process but i mean i've never done it but i i've seen enough uh online well, and, and forums and stuff even modern modern um people who who attempt to produce dmt from organic substances still come out with this reddish pink orange goo mm -hmm. which i think is akin to what what we're dealing with with this red powder or red stone okay i want to get into some of the ancient stuff because i know you touch on the amanita muscaria um for people who don't know it's the archetypal red you know red and white mushroom and some people argue whether it is hallucinogenic or not. We know Siberian shamans would drink reindeer urine after they the reindeer would consume it. And it's got to be metabolized because of the ibotanic acid, and it has to be converted to muscimol. Um, so you can either decarboxylate it somehow or 
drink your own urine or which sounds disgusting but um what do you do you think that that's connected to some of these ancient traditions as put forth by john allegro talking about jesus was a mushroom or whether it's uh, our gordon wasson's work with soma Uh, i have a little bit different opinion on that i think it's a little bit more likely in those regions that it was some sort of dmt extraction mixed with uh, obviously the maoi inhibitor in the area would be uh syrian rue which acacia and syria rue are pretty prevalent in, in the area of the three abrahamic religions and that shinan said the same in his uh, speculative hypothesis biblical biblical entheogens right <laughs> so what do you think about that do you think it, that that um, the amanita muscaria was contributing to that or do you think not not as likely or what do you think's going on with well, we, we know it was used It's because it's still used. Like you said, in the Tungus tribe in Siberia, it's still a sacrament there. And it's still, you know, there's reports of it being used um, by Yazidi groups even. Um, but, uh, you, you know, as far as it being um, uh, the solution to... What I think you're getting at, Soma, is right. are you asking? I think it's the loose solution to the Soma problem. Right. Um, I think R. Gordon Wasson's argument, a lot of his arguments are great, um, but I don't know if you've read Chris Bennett's book um, uh, on Soma and the uh, cannabis and the Soma solution. I, I think is the proper title. Well, I know that's one of the <laughs> options, right? Some people say it was a mixture of ephedra cannabis Fed, and opium very, or something along those lines all kinds of different things and there's evidence there's actual evidence for that yeah they a, found a, pots or something that had residue of those concoctions in there and, and here's my thing as ancient as soma is for as, the number of epochs that it's been employed or was employed before it was lost to time and we're talking lost to time was so long ago <clears throat> the era it was used was even longer hmm. um so throughout that time, I think it's very plausible, especially considering uh, climate change, uh, nomadism, people migrating from one area to another. Um, you naturally are going to lose access to certain plant entheogens. Even here, when we're talking about um, picking psilocybin mushrooms in Mississippi, you know, we might go to one field and do great for five years in a row, and then for the next two or three years, nothing. Right. You know, and if know where else to go to get them we wouldn't have them and that's where you get the idea of a substitute you know a substitute coming in and i i don't know whether you know it began as amanita or it began as cannabis or it began as syrian rue and ephedra and opium and all these things but what i do think is that throughout those vast epochs it was probably a number of things probably any number of things substituted whenever they had to be you know and maybe at some point substituted permanently because of uh uh you know some things are lost just due to passage of time and ignorance like soma is now you know and then even times when mushrooms like with the laws of manu mushrooms were made illegal no one could eat mushrooms no Mm -hmm. one could touch them except the priesthood you know so there's there's even times when they've been uh made illegal and forced out of the public uh, out of public consciousness so i think it, it could have been any number or all of those things right yeah i mean i, I know uh there's some even uh, i believe there was like a russian uh archaeological dig where they found um a tapestry 
that shows somebody holding up a mushroom over a flame right. and there's two people standing. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you also have the argument from, I think, Terrence McKenna and, and later on, Argorn Wasson even admitted that uh, Terrence McKenna's like food of the gods or the fact that like a psilocybe or psilocybin containing mushroom is a likely, a more likely source since you really wouldn't have to do much to it. It's more of an all-in-one technology where mm-hmm. Amanita, like I said, you have to decarboxylate it or dry it out. Is really, it's not really, I wouldn't call it a hallucinogen. It's a delirium. Even the visuals you see. Yeah, it's like a hypnotic are, hallucinogen, right? They're distortions of what you would see if you weren't on a drug. That's not, It's not a hallucination. It's a distortion. Um, hmm. So I have problems with it. Um, I, there's also the possibility that, um, like you said earlier, it's the archetypal mushroom. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if another Im- mushroom was implied in art or in poetic reference, you might still reference this mushroom mm-hmm. as a nod to it without specifically. It's like a universal re- symbol. Yeah, because it'll still get you high. Right. You eat it. You'll still get a result, but you won't get anything remotely close to what you would get if you ingested a tryptamine containing mushroom. Right, right. right. And also, I think I've since I've been like looking into stuff, too. Uh, Haoma goes back to even like ancient Assyrian, uh, the tree of life. So when you look at that, if you look at the the tree and the the depictions with the two eagle headed gods with the, the, uh, pine cones in their hands, there's something that almost feels like a more of a connection based on what I've seen to, like I said, more DMT than, uh, it could be. Other things again. It's it's a, it's still speculation. Nobody really knows. We may never know. But Ishtar was a, a goddess of that region, and she was known to have been worshipped in acacia groves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you also see the acacia show up over and over. Um, granted, this isn't Mesopotamia, but in Egypt, um, you see it over and over in uh, Egyptian art. It shows up in Egyptian fairy tales. It's, yeah, it's where super uh, prevalent. Osiris was uh, yeah, acacia trees, acacia bushes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, Aaron Voot talks a lot about that spirit in the sky, the connection with the Osiris myth. And um, even if you look at shamanism, there's a connection between shamanism being taken to the underworld, disassembled into pieces, and then re put mm-hmm. back together. Same thing with the. You know, she's not dismembered, but she goes to the underworld right. through the day. The seven veils has removed seven articles of clothing. You know, that's basically a, a motif of dismemberment, taking off seven articles of clothing. You know? Right. And, and Osiris being tacked into a, a bunch of pieces and then put back together. There's uh, a, there's a, from the 19th dynasty, um, there's a story called uh, Anpu and Bata. It's a story of two brothers. It basically mirrors the Osiris and Typhon myth to a T, mm. um, down to, you know, his genitals being chopped off and thrown in alligator infested waters <clears throat> but sounds one awesome yes yeah, <laughs> one of them takes his uh his heart depending on the translation it says heart or soul and places it in the acacia tree and tells his brother to go and make make beer from that acacia tree and drink it and then he will see the truth he will know the deception the wool that's been pulled over his eyes so you know the the acacia and, and i don't know if you've read mike crowley's book um Secret drugs and Buddhism, but he talks I, about. I'm, I'm going to get to it. I have seen it out there. It's, it looks interesting for sure. Something right up he my alley. Green Tara, Green Tara, and her connection to acacia, and uh, yeah, it 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 shows up, you know, all over the place in the Bible. It shows up, you know, with the Ark of the yeah, Covenant yeah. out of acacia wood. 
So, yeah, I, I just thought that it was more likely that there's some sort of Middle, Middle Eastern ayahuasca analog going on with the fact that Syrian root is pretty prevalent and there's a lot of be. mention. And then in the Bible, you've got mentions of acacia, the tamarisk tree. Um, Lots of connections. All, all these kinds of things. But I wanted to ask you, so how is this looked on within the Masonic community? Is it your... I would think that it's still pretty esoteric, meaning that I know some Freemasons just from like networking and stuff that they, and I'm not a Mason myself, but it just seems like there's a lot of people that are just in it as like a drinking club or not necessarily doing the kind of research that you're doing. So how how do other Masons look at you and look at this work? I'm sure there's some people that really enjoy it, but is there people that look down upon it or is it pretty well received? I look at I look at masonry and Masonic lodges as sort of a, um, a fractal representation of of society and the ratios of esoteric to not to act to not esoterically inclined types that you would encounter outside of a lodge is basically the same inside. Okay. Uh, and, and you know, granted, masonry might a, a, attract um, a different strata of people. It might appear that way. Once you get in the lodge, it's 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 pretty diverse, and and it it exists to serve more people than simply um, nerds like me. Like I'm a nerd. I'm a super geek when it gets to this stuff. Sure. You know, and and Join most clubs, <laughs> most basins aren't, and and uh, which is fine because it's not about that. You know, at the heart, what it's about is is how do we overcome our differences in, in a world where we're constantly divided? Um, how And if DMT helps us do that or helped us at one point, that's its function. But it, what masonry is really about in a practical sense in, in this world is, is, you know, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Christians, Buddhists sitting together and finding the one point on which they can all agree. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but as far as how is the DMT aspect of it received, of our history received, at first not so great. You know, I had, I, I actually had some really nasty hate mail for a few years when the book first came out. I haven't had any in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, more I've been able to give my argument, uh, the more I feel like people, particularly Masons, are realizing. Um, I'm not out here saying let's all go smoke DMT and lodge. I'm not saying we should bring it back. Right. Um, saying this is a part of our history. We're big boys, and if we're not free to talk about this, I don't know what the free and Freemasons is about. And we should be able to talk about this stuff. And right. at this point in our evolution, where we're starting to see psychedelics being taken seriously and a revolution actually occurring, and and DMT being you know decriminalized, and I never thought I would thought I would see DMT and psilocybin decriminalized. You know, never. I never even and, thought I'd see cannabis, cannabis. decriminalized. It is mind blowing. So it, this is happening, um, and it's it's time for the dialogue to take place, and. It should especially especially be in take, taking place in, in masonry behind Masonic doors uh, in a Masonic lodge. Not only is it part of our history, but it's uh, uh, it's part it's part of it's part of the 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 current um, dialogue that's uh, that's fueling 
<laughs> what's about to happen. I don't know right. what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. I feel like something's on the verge, you know, with with uh, all this psychedelic decriminalization um, and scientists actually actually being able to investigate them, you know. But the fact that one reason I really say Masons need to talk about it is because DMT wasn't properly discovered and synthesized until the 1950s. So the fact that our chemically inclined Freemasons... Menski or... I can't remember the guy's yeah. name, but the the fact that Freemasons have been producing it, you know, granted crudely since the 18th century uh, is fascinating and significant. You know, Freemasons have repeatedly touted the order as being friends to the to the arts and the sciences and the the ritual itself touts itself as a friend to the arts and sciences. Mm. Uh, and for the first time, it's starting to look like masonry may have actually made a lasting contribution to science if it would only for a second poke its its uh poke its nose in this direction and kind of investigate uh what was happening because i you know i don't i'm 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 not uh, i'm an autodidact like i speak english and that's it i can't read german and french and all which is what most of all these manuscripts are in so it'd be great if we could get uh Yeah, same here. I mean, we've been looking into a lot of like ancient Greek philosophy lately, and I'm always reading translations. I wish I could to speak Greek and go back and read it as is and translate myself because you might get more out of it. So the the people that do that, you know, there's different ways to interpret some of the stuff. But um, yeah, I think when you look at where this is going, I think you're right. I think it's leading somewhere. I I, sometimes I'm skeptical and, and, and pessimistic about it, depending on what you see, what's going on out there. There's a lot of um, stupid stuff happening too. But I, for the most part, I think mm-hmm. everybody within the psychedelic community is pretty cool. And you you get this sense that there is this spiritual element to it now where let's say when Maurice and I were in high school or let's say when you were younger and you talk about taking psychedelics, it was more of like, oh, let's get out of this consciousness. This is something completely different and cool. And it wasn't like a party drug. It's not like we were going to parties, but just something that could be taken to take you out of your normal day-to-day consciousness. And I remember looking, the only resource we had back then was Irwids because it wasn't, I mean, we're talking late nineties, early 2000. Oregon Arrowhead was really it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at now, like all the resources and the websites and the podcasts and just people talking about it, 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 I think it's brought a lot of attention. And even people that weren't even interested in this kind of stuff before, you've got people like Joe Rogan talking about smoking 5-MeO-DMT and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So um, do you think that there is some sort of connection to to these ancient civilizations in terms of they were using these things for mental health or do you think they were specifically using them for spiritual and ritual purposes? Well, I, I think, you know, to try and interpret how they were using them is always going to be problematic. We talk about mental health and medicine and, and we talk about art and creativity and science and religion and, and we talk about magic and mysticism. And I don't think all of these, I don't think these were separate are separate notions mm. for a lot of these groups. That's a good point. And, you know, it all would have been sort of this just an, a mystery, you know, mm-hmm. a, a mystery. And that's that's the real clincher. Um, uh, the ability to participate in the fact that we don't know, I think, is really 
probably the closest we can get to interpreting how they were using it. Um, of course, they the interpretations they applied to them, you, you know, in various cultures, you see it interpreted as an experience of one's ancestors, of earth spirits, um, of all these different things. But, uh, you know, even when we when we look at that stuff that they tell us at second hand of how they're interpreting, I still don't think we can even begin to approach it right. the way we brought up in, in, in our culture. It's just uh, we're so divorced from. I think it's a very simple thing. I think for them it's like obvious and, but we're so divorced from it that we have podcasts and interviews. <laughs> we're talking about it. Well, they don't even have to talk about it. Right. Just, it Do you know, think though that it, came from their connection from being so connected to the earth back then? The fact that you using your surroundings and using the resources around you was far more common than it is now where we have no connection to the food or no connection to the, the earth around us for the most part, you've got still farmers and people running uh, uh, large farms and growing their own crops and stuff like that. But for the most part, we have no connection. We don't slaughter our own meat and we don't harvest. Well, like our, our other guest was saying, we don't even put our feet into the ground. Most of, most of us wear <laughs> shoes, obviously we're not physically making contact with the earth anymore. Right. Right. And that's a big, you know, mind body dualism is, is a big part of Western dilemma. And I don't think it is uh, another, I hate to say primitive, indigenous is probably a better word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, the, the mind-body dualism problem goes back, I'm not sure, sure if you're familiar with the different Gnostic sects that yeah. were, you know. I'm very well read in Gnosticism. It, well, it's, you know, it, it goes way back. And it's it, what that demonstrates is it's a it's an old problem. Sure. Um you know, I, I, uh, I can't remember who it was. I was reading an article by a, um, it was a neuroscientist. It was several years ago, but he made, he made the comment that, uh, you know, in a big way, your, your, your body is your unconscious mind. Mm. The way your body reacts is your unconscious mind. Uh, and I liked that a lot. And it helped me kind of think about, you know, I, I, I've always been very, you know, like I said, nerdy, geeky, um, never been very much in my body. Uh, but, uh, but I think people in indigenous cultures, I think very much are in the, in their body. Mm. And I think, uh, I suspect that Americans are not, we're very much in, yeah. not even in our heads. We're very much into things and doing things and, you know, consuming things. Consume, yeah, absolutely. I hate to rag on us. But. No, no. You're right. Hey, well, I wanted to ask it you. Is what it is. I wanted to ask you about something. So, I've seen this arc. We talk about archetypes usually having to do with the human psyche and mind and consciousness, but I found that I've seen. Okay, so I don't know what you guys call it in masonry. Was it the main room or the main? I don't even know what you call it. It's the checkered floor with the, the lodge. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so the lodge room, actually the lodge is the men that meet there, but that's the lodge room. Okay. And then you've got the two pillars. Was it, uh, Bo Boaz and, uh, uh, Joe Kim or something like Jake, that. In the, in Solomon's temple, there were two pillars that were named Jacob and Boaz. Jacob and Boaz. Okay. So I've seen that archetypal, I'm obviously not a Mason. I've seen that archetypal checkered floor in heavy dose, 
psilocybin trips and even sometimes in meditation what do you think's going on there is that something from our past do you think that's why the masons pick it up and use it or what do you think's going on there i really don't know i i've Every time I've ever done DMT, I see that. And it's kind of a warped uh, circus tent, black and white, harlequin kind of patchwork, black and white patchwork. I see it every time. And I, I uh, you know, I really don't know. Um, Almost like you're on a chessboard. I mean, that, that, that symbol shows up uh, before the change was made to Acacia. So... The two, I don't think, are related, unless Mackey is correct. Mackey made this one argument um, in his Encyclopedia of Freemasonry where he said that that Cassia never was in the Masonic rituals, that it was always Acacia, and that the people who were saying Cassia were actually illiterate, and the Mm. habit of illiterate people at the time was to sink any word sink the letter a into any word of which it constituted the initial syllable so acacia would have become cassia mm. I was, uh, that's why i was actually asking you that earlier when when i was asking you about the cassia because they're so close i could see what you're saying where it would be taken the translation and we've seen it through mm-hmm. other channels too in, in history where things are taken either out of context or literally and change or whatever the case may be so that's why i was asking you that makes sense though that it would could have been that forever what's the further you have there's when you take uh, when certain incenses are made from acacia from certain strains of acacia i think it's acacia farnesiana it was called cassie c-a-s-s-i-e to that complicated complicates it even further but there it implies that cassie was a name given to acacia extracts so even still problematic, but go ahead. No, I was just saying, what's the earliest, how far far back does Freemasonry go? What was the earliest um, uh, formal assemblance, and w- do you know what the origin of that is? Um, so in the earliest days of Freemasonry, it occurred during the time of trade guilds, where you would have specific guilds that were given to a specific trade where someone would apprentice therein and eventually become a master and use that job as his uh, contribution to his society and his way to make money. Um, So at the time, masonry was just that. It was a trade guild um, of people who knew the mathematical formulas necessary for building a square edifice that wouldn't collapse on its inhabitants. And uh, at the time, you you started having um, people show up that would claim to be Masons that actually weren't. Mm. And this was problematic because they'd say, well, I'm a master Mason and I'll build your house or your church cheaper than that guy. And then they'd do it and the edifice would collapse on the inhabitants, kill people, you know. So because of this, to protect and make sure that Masons were Masons, they were granted the right to meet in secret. And this secrecy kind of developed, uh, you know, a tiered system where they were allowed to secrets. Not only could they meet in secret from anyone else, um, but secrets started happening within it between apprentices and masters. And it became sort of this, uh, hierarchy, this hierarchical system. 
Well, because they were the only group granted the right to meet in secret other than the church and the king, uh, naturally it became a hotbed for ideas that were possibly contrary to the church and the king. Mm. Um, for you got to think about the Inquisition, uh, the dan- the real dangers of discussing ideas that maybe weren't that bad, but in the church's eyes may have yeah. been some, um, hermetic notions, you know, things about which takes you back to Hellenistic religion and could have been seen as something the Inquisition w- wouldn't have cared for. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that uh, faction. Um, so the, the theory is that it kind of became a hotbed for these notions that are progressive or forward thinking or contrary to the church or the king. And that's whenever you started seeing people like Elias Ashmole and Sir Robert Murray, who were not builders at all, but were rather alchemists being initiated into the Masonic fraternity. Um, and, uh, by 1717, uh, it officially became the United Grand Lodge of England. And that's whenever masonry as we know it, um, was, uh, uh, excuse me, the premier Grand Lodge in England. And that's whenever masonry as we know it was, uh, um, created hmm. uh, as a, as a, as a degree system that has these these particular uh, transmissions. Of course, it's gone through different evolutions in different countries, and when it came to America, each state has its own work. But basically, you get you know two masons from any part of the world together, and it's similar enough to where they can communicate masonically. Uh, so, so that's how, that's how how we got to yeah a fraternity. Okay. Um, and but some of the traditions that you have go back even further BC. So isn't some of the stuff predicated on a reenactment of the murder of Hiram Abiff, who was the architect of King Solomon's Temple? Um, something along those lines. That, we take that that comes from the Old Testament. You know, Hiram actually shows up in the Old Testament. But the story, the allegory with which we're provided in the Master Mason degree, is not the story that's attached to him in the Bible. Okay. It's an oral transmission. It's a different gotcha. story. So even though it's a biblical character, it's not at all a biblical story. Hmm. And it doesn't go back to biblical times. There's no evidence of a direct lineal transmission from Jerusalem, Egypt, any of that stuff. You know, masonry began as a trade guild. Now, the the men who came to it and injected certain ideas into it that's another story and that's where you know especially when by the time we get to people like Cagliostro and Melissino Cagliostro actually calls it his Egyptian right of Freemasonry sure. and, and you know there are obvious analogs between you know the story of Osiris and that of Hiram mm-hmm. um, just like there are analogs between any of those figures that you would you know maybe pick out and analyze from say uh, uh Cursey Graves, 16 Crucified Saviors, or, or Frazier's uh, Golden Bow, you know, there's a lot, you can, it's easy to find those analogs and point them out, and there's certainly some to Osiris, uh, the most obvious being the Acacia Sprig. Sure. So do you think that there is a connection to Freemasonry in ancient Egypt that that was maybe part of the inspiration for it, or I we've been talking a lot lately, like I said, about ancient Greece and philosophy and the Eleusinian mysteries. And you have 
Plato, Aristotle, even Pythagoras taking part in these uh, ceremonies where there's even people don't realize this, there was levels of the Eleusinian mysteries too. So some people that were maybe politicians, statesmen, philosophers, uh, rich people were included even in a higher uh, tier of initiation where there, it sounds like with that uh, Kikion, which I, I'm sure more people had access to, but you know, they talk about anybody that's what you're talking about, the lesser and the greater mystery, right? And anybody could participate in the greater mystery so long as they had been through the lesser mystery, right? It seems like the lesser mystery was a ritualized, dramatic portrayal of an allegory meant to impart the lesson of two lessons, the immortality of the soul and the reality of their gods, mm-hmm. their pantheon. Um, basically to teach the cosmology, to teach them of an underworld and of gods and sure. all this stuff. Uh, yeah. The greater mystery <clears throat> is when they would come back and they would experience that underworld firsthand via the Kikion. They right. would experience that afterlife and the gods firsthand. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and they talk of the way that it's described in some of the ancient texts. It's death and rebirth or death, mm-hmm. sim- simulation of death, so... You would understand the process, things like that. One of them says, leave your body and become at home with the gods. Right. Pretty uh, significant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but when we talk about that kind of stuff, it seems like even there's a little bit of pushback on that, even though it's written in the text and you have all the work of R. Gordon Wasson and the speculation that it was Claviceps Perpea, which is ergot, as a precursor to LSD. Um and obviously mushrooms grow everywhere too. So even if it wasn't specifically that, there's plenty of other options. Uh, do you think that when you talk about these ancient rituals and stuff, and all these things are associated with megalithic structures and building, not that the philosophers were building stuff, but you have to think anybody that's done psychedelics, you see a lot of geometric patterns, you see a lot of um, stuff like that. So I could see where in a spiritual sense that feeling mixed with seeing those images might be an inspiration for building some things. Do you think that there's a correlation there? There could be, you know, um, I've, I recently prepared a talk on Heinrich Kluver, who I don't know if you're familiar with Kluver's form constants, no. but he and his assistant back in the twenties were experimenting with mescaline, um, taking mescaline and, noting the phenomenology of the experience, mainly the visuals. Um, and what he noted were that there were four basic categories that he called form constants. That is how these geometrical visuals manifested. Um, they were lattices, um, funnels or tunnels, um, spirals and honeycombs. I believe, I believe were all of them. Mm. Um, But uh, in the paper, I basically go through sacred sites, including uh, petroglyphs, cave art, um, all the way up into mosques and cathedrals, um, sacred sites in Ireland, uh, and show how all of these motifs um, appear in what we would call sacred spaces, sacred sites everywhere, Mm -hmm. including a Masonic lodge. When you talk about that lattice, that floor, that checkered floor, that's that lattice we're talking about you know he that's it's part of every every mescaline trip you know so Mm -hmm. no i mean that that absolutely makes sense that's what i was saying i think that there's 
something there, especially with Pythagoras, father of the Pythagorean theorem, and definitely. Uh, and after we go into the in this fellowcraft degree, you know, you encounter the radiant letter G, which I'm sure you've seen. Yeah, so so that's what you're you're God and geometry. Yeah, so it's the grand architect of the universe, something like that. Grand geometrician. Okay. And uh, so there, this there's this already, and this takes place in what's called the middle chamber. It's literally the the. Uh, the heart, you know, almost not quite the sanctum sectorum, but the heart of, of this mystery, what's happening in the second degree. And it's there that you encounter um, God and geometry in the form of this letter G, which has sure. always been interesting because see, you know, in master Mason in the, in Freemasonry, the three degrees are likened to youth, manhood and death. Mm-hmm. So death, we know it takes place in the master Mason degree. Well, it's in the fellowcraft degree, the second degree, before the master mason degree, where the candidate ascends this spiral staircase into like this heavenly whirlwind up into this place where he encounters deity and as geometry, right? But this whirlwind, this ascension happens to him in life, not in death. You know, he doesn't encounter the letter G after he dies. He encounters mm-hmm. it in life. I've always thought that was really a, an interesting an interesting point. It, it, sure. It's almost it's almost like the degree gives you permission um, to 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 have a revelation, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Do you? You think... mentioned that uh, there's a lot of religions coming together in these uh, these lodges. Are you a religious person in any way? Or no, I was I was raised um, Southern Baptist. I never identified as Southern Baptist. Um. And as I got older, I really distanced myself from it because I identified that as Christianity. Uh, but the older I got um, and explored Christianity on my own, I kind of made friends with it. Um, I'm very fascinated by orthodoxy. I'm not an orthodox Christian, um, but I'm fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to be a Mason, don't you have to believe in a higher power, higher creator or something but you don't necessarily have to be any specific religion that's right you have to believe in a supreme being by whatever you define that and and it can be because for example we buddhists can be freemasons i'm not sure how familiar you are with the buddhist concept of uh of anatar no self no soul uh Mm -hmm. basically they're in the final analysis no god um but there is still this this impression of a supreme something sure you know it's a loose idea you don't like have a, to like a framework or something or maybe <laughs> universal consciousness or something like anything that. you know some people for, for some people it might be just the universe you mm-hmm. know it could be vague but uh, but yeah you, you have to you have to believe in a supreme being um to be admitted into a lodge mm-hmm. before we wrap it up here i do want to get to what your thoughts are on a couple things. One of them being DMT entities, DMT machine elves, whatever you want to call them. Do you think that that's an archetype of our subconscious and therefore alien in that nature? Or do you really think it's something possibly external? I mean, we've had other guests on like Dr. Andrew Gallimore who suggests that 
when you do these things, you're in commune with something alien in nature, whether it be from a different dimension, a different part of the universe, whatever the case may be. Do you think it's something external or do you think it's something internal? Well, I think that question really boils down to the the dilemma of William James versus Carl Jung. You know, William James and his varieties of religious experience, he kind of implied that what's happening in, on these substances is real, that we're opening a door into some territory that is real, you know. But um, Jung, on the other hand, would argue that these, like you say, were, are archetypal phenomena. There's something that um, are native to what we would call the collective unconscious, meaning um, something which all men are possessed of or, or possessed by might be a better way to put it. Um, and Young talked about in a, in a letter to a woman named Betty Grover Eisner, who is, I believe, a psychiatrist. She had asked him about LSD and mescaline, and he basically admitted its efficiency. He said that, you know, that it does indeed induce a brush with the collective unconscious, but he said that he wasn't very happy about it. And uh, that's probably because he thought, um, you know, the, anyone who's dealing with archetypal content like that is go they're going through what he thought was a healing process they're, these are symptoms of someone going through the process of individuation if you're not going through that process you don't stir up that hornet's nest was kind of how how he looked at it but that being said um you know both of those arguments have weight to them i'm i lean more towards the Jungian argument uh i do i do suspect that these are um, you know, aspects of the collective unconscious. I, I believe there are stratas of the of the unconscious. There's a personal unconscious, and you know, anybody who has experimented with meditation is very familiar with the personal unconscious. It's all that stuff that did happen, or you did think about from the past, or that bothers you, that pops up and that is worrisome and just won't go away. Right. Um, you get through that strata, which in in magical and theosophical circles they call that the lower astral. But by the time you push through that, you enter what they call the higher astral, which is Jung's collective unconscious, which is peopled with what even Freud called archaic forms. And these archaic forms, um, they're psychic. Jung argued they were psychic manifestation of the instincts. Now, when we talk about instincts, people think mainly about survival. Um, and that's exactly how you should think about it here. These are survival instincts, but it's on a psychological level. And, uh, you know, I definitely suspect that, you know, a lot of these feminine encounters that we hear about through psychedelics, um, particularly through men, is most likely an anima encounter, if you're familiar with um, with his notion of the anima. A lot of... Uh, um, a lot of what people experience on psychedelics, high dose psychedelics particularly, has very mythological motif motifs to it. Um, so much so that I know from personal experience, you can experience, you can go through myths you have never encountered, and there's no other way to explain that to to be able to actually, you know, names names of gods show archaic names of gods have shown yeah. up in you know, that just makes no sense how you could know this. And granted, you know, you can't rule out cryptomnesia, the idea that you did encounter it somewhere and just forgot and it sprung back up as some new idea. You can never rule that out. you got to always be skeptical. But 
um, but it's so consistent that I don't see any other uh, way to analyze it. Now, that being said, we don't know. Hmm. You know, we can't right. know. We we can't know, and that's the big clincher. And 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 that I don't think that detracts from it either, because whether it's real or whether it's not, or whether you can dismiss it as say we can't know whether it's real or not the end result is always the same because whenever you're experiencing it, you're experiencing it. Right. It's real. It's in your face. You can say, Oh, I'm just on a drug. But when you're on DMT, you can't just say I'm just on a drug because the things you're aware of are aware of you. There's this mutual kind of face to face, uh, phenomenon about it. That doesn't mean that it's real, that you're really face to face with something. It means that you're experiencing something that's characterized by being face to face with something. Absolutely. Which, which fits right in with the Jungian model. So, you know, I don't know, but uh, for my own sanity, the best model <laughs> that I can adopt is Jung's. You know? but and what, that doesn't say, Jung's model doesn't rule out gods either. It doesn't right. say there aren't gods or spirits. It's just saying that what we're experiencing may not be them. It may be this own strata of our psyche. And why do that? Well, you know, we know that intuition can can ascertain a lot of information that rationally we can't and if that if we try to give that information directly to ourselves we have this filter this little ego filter funnel that says wait you can't know that that's speculation and it immediately rejects it before it makes it to consciousness but the brain is pretty tricky and it can make these little things i like to call designated messengers Mm -hmm. where it'll have something come to you and tell you this information and all of a sudden you accept it you say well i couldn't have known that myself i this came from an outside source this special information and all of a sudden you at least consider it you know but it still doesn't rule out the possibility i guess what we're really dealing with is descartes demon you know can't rule out descartes demon sure and that would you have it you have experienced some of these though in some of your experiences like archetypal yes thing? absolutely yes i i encountered uh two three three names in all of a of an egyptian deity that uh, i had never heard anywhere never read anywhere and to this day still can't find where i would have found the source if it was an example of cryptonesia but yes three specific names for one egyptian deity uh that are given to him in three different states depending on whether he's a babe at a breast or whether he's in battle or whether he's in a, uh, as an elder, but yeah, three specific names. And I, they even had spelled their names were written in red arches over their heads. So I even got spelling. Wow. Know, pretty wild. So do you think though, well, cause what you're describing makes a lot of sense and I've definitely thought along those lines as well, but then we've inter- interviewed enough people and asked them similar questions where it seems like, that okay so the subconscious is you could just say it's alien in nature anyway so whether we're talking about something external or internal it's still foreign to us in our day-to-day consciousness so therefore it is something unknown but then the greater question is like i asked you which would be is it external or internal or maybe it's a mixture of both maybe it's a playoff of those things but when it get when you get down to it there are a lot of similar accounts but yet a little different, you know, maybe the, some of the details vary from person to person, but there are some of these common themes that people see. And even people that do ayahuasca see this jaguar. And we know there's been instances of jaguars chewing on these vines and stuff and probably mm-hmm. having their own psychedelic experience of some sort. 
so it it does make me wonder um is there some sort of realm where all this stuff comes together that we're just not McKenna uh, thought of us. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, aware of based on our, our five senses because our senses, according to Parmenides, lie to us. So why would that? And even, okay, so, but then the argument would be, so Aristotle even would talk about when he was talking about dreams, that dreams are just what you were describing. It's us taking in all this light and all this information and then variations of that dancing in our head as we go to sleep or playing. The personal unconscious. That... Right. So you know. uh, that's that's my my thought is I think that there's some weird things that people draw from these realms. So there is something mystical about it of some nature, but it's you're you're right. It's hard to. I've thought about it in certain psychedelic states, and I, I've come to the conclusion that if nothing else, these substances allow you to to think freely in the sense that you have no barriers or restrictions that you would normally have, let's say right now, even us talking or day-to-day consciousness, um, mm-hmm. you are free from that and, and allowed to go to places you wouldn't normally go to. Um, and that's why I think you see a lot of artists, musicians, creative people using these things because it does allow you to expand that. But sure. when, when you, what's the weirdest thing that you've seen that is, is it the Egyptian thing or is there some experience where let's say you saw a God or an alien or whatever the case may be? Is there something where you came out of it and you're like, Oh my, what's going on here? There's been probably thousands of those. <laughs> I don't normally talk about my trips. Much. Okay. Well, yeah, you don't have to. I, I was just curious. I don't mind. I'll mention one. I don't usually talk about them because I, um, I recently said in another interview, I feel like there's so many reports out there. It, it, at some point, it just becomes noise, you know. It's and but I think I with get, your research, I like to hear people that have actually done researches takes on these things because you do have a background in what you're saying. It's not just smoking or doing these drugs. It's you have some sort of rapport with what's going on. So that's why I'd like I like to know. One thing I experienced with entities that uh, an entity that absolutely was staggering. Um, I had taken um, DMT on bicycle day and I was already on LSD. It was during my LSD peak. Um, But once I hit the DMT, for some reason I walked out on my balcony and there was a terrible lightning storm going on. It was raining. Um, And I still suspect that I might've been struck by lightning. I'm not sure. Like I got, it could have just been the DMT, but the experience I had was this, incredible flash of light and I was paralyzed and I remember my teeth being stuck together and I heard this awful buzz insect kind of noise that absolutely terrified me and I looked down at my feet and I was standing on my balcony and my balcony the rail is at my waist Mm -hmm. and I looked down and I saw the rail was just under my toes and I thought shit I'm on the rail and i'm gonna tip over and fall off so i thought i gotta get down but i couldn't move i was paralyzed had my hands on my hips like uh like peter pan or something (laughs) and so right right at this point i think i'm gonna tip over i notice something out of the corner out of my upper peripheral vision and it's like honey like honey's dripping down and i look up and the whole sky has become it's a palace but it's made out of honey and there's honeycomb designs on it and it's dripping with honey and there's 
it looks like Sri Yantras all over it. Like, but the way it looks is it like when you drop a pebble in water and it ripples out, right. there were three yantras rippling like this all over it. And my, I just was absolutely in awe of this, this, whatever it was. And then I noticed that just below it, there was this entity. And this was, this was the first, my first entity encounter where it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like a hallucination. It was the realest. It was as real as real, yeah. you know, but, uh, it was, it was about 25 feet tall and it had arms all over it on each side. And, uh, it was very muscular. didn't have a shirt on and each arm held a weapon. Um, so it was like Goro from Mortal Kombat. Kind Con- of. <laughs> arm. Right. And, and instead of a face, it was, like the Mayan calendar, but instead of the face at the center, there was a skull. Oh. And I knew that this thing was death. And it tells me, it's not using words, but it's waving these weapons at me. And it's and it's saying to me that if I go any further, that I die, that this is it, that I can, I can go in the palace if I want to, but that's the it, for, that's it for my body. And I just have to be okay with my son not having a dad. And he will be okay. It told me, it was like, he will be fine, but you got to make the choice. He's like, I'm death. And this is the ring past knot. Mm. And I said, uh, I didn't even think about it. I said, Nope, no, thanks. See ya. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> <And laughs> in my, yeah, walked back in my, my apartment. And, uh, and yeah, I have no regrets either. You know, I would, I'd pick my son over anything, but, right. uh, but it, that was, that was the, by far the strangest, realist, most uh, just outrageous experience for sure. Yeah, I find that that's when people say that there's there is this crossover when people say more real than real. So people that have near death experiences, people that intense psychedelic trips or out of body experiences, they mm-hmm. tend to say it's more real than real. Near death people, even what you're suggesting, they get there the option they prefer to stay in that realm for whatever it just feels better or it's free or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. They, per- and then when they come back, they, a lot of the near death experience people will say that, uh, that they wish, wish they could have stayed or something along those lines. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. I'm sure it would have been interesting, you know, fascinating little pocket of experience, but, uh, but I'm having a blast huh. here right now. Yeah, 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 for sure. I really love, happening i think if i could have picked any time to be alive this would be it nice so before we wrap it up let's talk a little bit about your new book uh just give a little uh a little overview so is that is that due to come out soon or are you still working on it or it's still about a year out um i'm still waiting on the second edition of my first book to come out um it was planned for the autumn equinox but it's been pushed back we should hopefully see it um after the first of the year. And then after that, I'm going to really start uh, working on wrapping up the psilocybin manuscript, the alchemy text. Um, So I wouldn't look for any sooner than, um, than probably uh, uh, um, spring of 2021. Okay. And that's, you said that's going to be about psilocybin and um... it's so it's a, it's about, um, references to entheogenic um coprophilus meaning dung loving mushrooms uh and 
uh, European alchemical texts. We've massed tons of them and found uh, a lot of really fun, fascinating uh, examples that I think is is gonna gonna blow some people's minds. Nice. Well, if, looking forward to it. Like I said, I loved Alchemically Stoned. And Thank you. Anybody that hasn't read it, we have the link down below. Pick it up on uh, Amazon. I I buy very few books that are actually books still. I usually rely on Kindle or Audible or one of those just because it's always easy and I'm busy and it's on the fly. But your book's one of the few books that I've actually purchased um, a physical right copy of recently. Yeah. So it's nice to have that hard that hard copy too. You know, sometimes it's yeah a little more realistic. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I can't read on on. Um electronic for more than a few pages it just uh it gets to my eyes but yeah i can read read paper all day long for sure i try to i try to go to the actual hard books because when at night i'm trying to relax i don't want to be reading on a on a device pumping that light in my eyes right. you know but yep. it yep. definitely is easier and i don't know works for some people so well thanks for picking up my book and uh i'd love to hear some thoughts on it later maybe after the talk in the future yeah I mean, yeah we like to get people back on you know give it give it some air to breathe and maybe we can link up uh, a couple months from now absolutely i'd love to yeah and if we can talk about anything we can focus on another topic too that maybe you have some background in but yeah this was super interesting and um we got to ask you some questions i was curious about with freemasonry and also its connection to some of these substances so yeah this was a fun talk for sure Check out his book, buy it below. Do you have a website or just the book? Or, uh, Well, you can go to my publisher's website. It's uh, The Laudable Pursuit, and um, preferably get the book there. Um, I also have a Facebook presence that's just Alchemically Stoned by P.D. Newman, okay. and that's where I post uh, you know, podcast interviews, uh, where, where and when I'm going to lecture, um, that kind of thing, new, new um, publications. Awesome. Nice. Well, thanks for coming on, and you can check us out at Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice. For $2 a month, you'll get some exclusive access content. Uh, you'll, we've got videos and audio on there, and check out our website, MikeAndMauriceMindEscape.com. We're also on all social media platforms. And again, PD, thanks for coming on. I'm glad we finally got this in, and uh, we'll do it again soon in the future. Thanks, guys. So much fun. Yep. Thank have a, you. Have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. Peace. Yeah.